Hi, everyone. Today is February 11th, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Mike Smotherman, who is an assistant professor of biology at Texas A&M. Hi, Mike. Hi. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Nicole Witcha. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Sama Karashi. So Mike is a physiologist who's interested in mapping the circuits that regulate the structure and timing of vocalizations in mammals. His work on the pontine parabrachial nucleus established it as an integration zone for complex sensory motor feedback circuits that serve vocal control in bats as well as humans. More recently, he's headed upstream to target the caudate nucleus as a putative audio-vocal patterning region. So I want to start on a really broad note here. Um, so in the study of vocal uh, motor pathways, there seem to be two very independent literatures, one human and the other non-human. I guess it's mostly avian. Um, uh, can you talk about the history of this divide and maybe whether it's possible to draw the two strains closer? Oh. Well, that's hitting the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's the bird song literature and there's human literature. And then there is, in, in, in its own world, primates. And there, there is, uh, the primate literature is gigantic. And it's almost completely separate. And one of the things that amazes me that even the best primate researchers studying primate vocalizations never ever even acknowledge birdsong literature. I mean, it blows my mind that they can write a whole paper and just pretend that it doesn't exist. And then on the other hand, you know, with with birdsong research, I think you're under some obligation always to draw parallels and try to point these things out. Um. But the, the thing I think that, that happened that is one of my, my main motivations is that the experiments that have been done in primates uh, have all relied upon a very narrow set of techniques that led them to a conclusion that, that primates and mammalian vocalizations are much more simple and primitive than, than human speech. And as a result, the... the picture that we have of how a primate vocal motor pathway works is completely different than what you see in, in a bird. And I have the idea <clears throat> that had it been explored differently, you know, had different techniques been used, had a broader range of techniques been used, you know, over the same time frame that people have been working on birdsong, that we would have a very different picture of how primates and other mammals vocalize. So can you summarize what... what that uh, general path that, that the primate people went down? Well, what was it dominated by? The way I summarize it is I ask, you know, if we went back in time and we told Fernando Nottebaum that he could only use electrical microstimulations and that for the next 40 years we only used electrical and chemical microstimulations to study the bird song, you'd have a completely different view of how that system works. Uh-huh. And that's basically what's happened in mammals. Now, there is the unavoidable fact that at some level, the behavioral level, it appears that mammalian vocalizations are quite simple. Obviously, we don't have birdsong in a mammal. Well, we do now. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, dogs and cats and <clears throat> monkeys, they all make very simple vocalizations. And so, on the surface, it seems reasonable to suspect that those are produced by very simple pattern generators. And some of the early experiments showing that you can stimulate fairly far down in the midbrain and still get normal-looking vocalizations creates the impression that they are produced by low-level pattern generators. But that may not be true. 
And I think even Uwe Jurgens and some of his most recent uh, reviews has sort of dramatically changed his opinion about how the, the primate brain works. Whereas you only have to go back to 2002 where they were very clearly, you know, sort of a limbic-based viscera motor vocalization pattern. And you jump ahead to 2007, and all of a sudden these reviews have, they're including putative basal ganglia functions and forebrain loops, even though there's not really any evidence for it yet. Those things, I think, are really good examples where the birdsong literature has influenced the thinking in the primate literature, and yet those researchers are still sort of denying that it's influencing how they're, they're interpreting their results. A little bit about your animal model and how it's been useful for exploring um, specifically evolution um, of, of architecture of these neural circuits and, and how um, they underlie human speech and language production, because ultimately that's the goal here, I assume. Right, well, so the, the reason I use bats and uh, some of the other people that I work with use bats to study vocalizations is the idea is that the uh, innate communication sounds are not sensitive to auditory feedback. And so it's hard to make the argument that they need any complex forebrain circuitry. But echolocation pulses are extraordinarily sensitive to auditory feedback. And we can see in experiments in the lab that the way the bats use sensory feedback is actually quite complex, and it's influenced by environmental context and behavioral context. And all of those things lead us to believe that echolocation probably relies upon a sophisticated forebrain circuitry for doing this particular vocal behavior. So do we know much about the evolution of uh, echolocation? Uh, about as much as we know about the evolution of language. <laughs> I mean, do we know? <laughs> so who are echolocators? Let's go back to the, to the beginning here. Who are, well, the, who, who are the players here? Actually, echolocation, strictly speaking, is widespread. Uh, generally, we're talking about the microbats, the, the specific uh, group of bats that use echolocation, but not all bats do. Uh, and then, of course, there's whales and dolphins, the cetaceans. Uh, but there's also birds that echolocate, very famously the oil birds that live back in caves, and they make little clicking noises as they fly through. And even people can echolocate, like blind people, as noted by Don Griffin like 60 years ago, become good, in a sense, at using echoes and even making noises uh, to navigate. What about non-human primates? They must be able to echolocate. <laughs> yes, I imagine under the right circumstances. Well, so there is some evidence that you know the bats are at least some groups of bats are related to primates. All right. So do we know? But we don't. Do we have uh, guesses for common ancestors and and how far back echolocation goes? Or, or no? Well, there's lots of guesses. As far as bats go, I think the most interesting question is uh, you know. Flight versus echolocation. And they learn to fly before they learn to echolocate, or vice versa. You know, I like to think of it, the bats, they evolved from some kind of tree-dwelling insectivorous mammal. Maybe something like a, 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 a gliding squirrel or something like that. But I don't know. Um, <clears throat> there's some interesting work that just came out about the evolution of the Preston gene. Uh, 
can't remember the name of the author, even though I should. Uh, but the prestin is a protein in the outer hair cells in a mammalian cochlea. And it's been shown that the prestin gene in echolocators has certain tweaks to it to make it work. Uh, and so based on that, they're starting to revise uh, theories about how and when echolocation evolved. So at the other end of this, what bats tell us about human language and, and speech production, the idea is, is that <clears throat> bats use feedback in a way that's similar to potentially the way humans use it. Is that what sort of bridges the gap there between? Yeah, yeah. So that's the, at, the, at the basic level, that kind of a similarity, I think, explains it. Uh, but in a bigger sense, you know, I think we're all interested in how speech and language evolved and what parts of the human brain are really unique what aspects are unique, and separately, how, to what extent is the human speech based on fairly common motor control pathways? So what, what, what are the vocal parameters that are influenced by sensory feedback, and what are the major classes of sensory feedback, since that's such an important idea here? And, and what are the pathological effects on speech or vocalizations when these inputs are mistimed or disrupted? Do we have a, a sense of what the players are for at, at each sort of level, phylogenetic level, and 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 how they're how they what the interplay is? Well, the the uh, the main players, of course, are auditory and somatosensory feedback. And somatosensory feedback comes from the larynx and the respiratory system. And uh, in speaking humans, it's easy to forget just how much I think we pay attention to those cues. The auditory cues are always obvious. And those make sense to people, but they're, they're not used to thinking about or being aware of how you feel your sensories, your, your larynx, you feel your respiratory system. And I think those are underappreciated. There's some really great work in, in, in birds describing how somatosensory feedback influences vocalizing. And there's less work in mammals, but I think that that's an important part of understanding how the, the motor pathways function. It, it becomes more obvious, um, I think, in two areas. Um, when you're learning a second language, you, become to, you have to focus more on the shape of your mouth, the, 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 the where your tongue is, the where, how you're positioning, how the air comes out, especially if the language that has very different sounds from the one that you're used to. And yeah. the other place, of course, is in... Um, speech motor pathologies where they try to uh, make people through biofeedback aware of the control of the mm -hmm. speech motor pathways, right? Yeah. I wonder if in those areas there is some something a little bit more evidence for um, the importance of these this kind of information that we do take for granted when we're native right. speakers of a, a language. Well, uh, right, so in, in Parkinson's disease... Uh, one of the, uh, the, the the speech disorders that develops is called hypophonia, where people talk too quietly, and they don't seem to realize that they're doing it. And yeah, the, the, there's some indication that you can train people to talk louder, uh, at least in a clinical setting. You can teach them to talk louder and to bring their voice up, although there's also a lot of it that kind of disappears as soon as they leave the clinical setting. Uh there's a really neat paper that came out recently uh, by a couple of guys named Hammer and Barlow where they studied the sensitivity of the larynx in Parkinson's patients. And they were able to show that 
people's perception of how their larynx feels actually degenerates with Parkinson's disease. And so that's a, an interesting avenue. So since we're, since we're on that topic, um, so you developed an experimental protocol in the bat for looking at the, the role of the basal ganglia um, in the regulation of, of complex temporal patterns of vocal emissions. Could you just flesh that out a bit for us and, and maybe give us your working hypothesis of the, ba- the basal ganglia's role in vocal patterning, especially since we have somebody here who knows a little mm-hmm. something about basal ganglia? Well, we, uh, I take a cue from the, uh, the experiments on syntactical grooming in rats. Uh, there's some neat experiments, uh, for example, that show that if you inject... Does uh, everyone know what syntactical... I don't know what syntactical grooming is. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it's this, this fantastic little phenomena where the, the rats, when they start grooming themselves, they go through a very specific sequence oh, yeah, of okay. movements to, to clean themselves. And it's like syntax in the sense that those movements can be mixed and matched and done in slightly different orders and so on, uh, but the individual movements stay... Pretty unchanged as that's happened. Sorry, go ahead. And so these experiments showed that uh, uh, certain dopaminergic agonists could, when they're injected into the caudate nucleus, that could trigger this behavior and this sort of forced sequencing in this behavior. And that, as far as I know, is some of the, the key evidence indicating a role for temporal sequencing in, in the striatum. Uh, and so that's kind of what we think about in terms of what we're seeing with the, the bat song, that uh, <clears throat> if the striatum is involved in like song production in bats in the same way that it is in birds, then we would anticipate that it plays some role in, in guiding and regulating syllable sequences. So tell us about your approach, about the experiments and what you found. Right, and so what we've done is basically copy <clears throat> to work in the rodents by uh, using implantable cannulas and injecting these kind of drugs into at least part of uh, the caudate nucleus that we think is involved in vocal control. And uh, surprisingly, uh, uh, the bats did start producing highly stereotyped vocal sequences. The exciting thing Last about the, the song itself is that it's a pretty clear example of the animals using uh, different syllables in a specific sequence to produce a meaningful uh, song, which has important repercussions for their ecology. That kind of uh, production is not accounted for or not explained in any way by what we know currently about the mammalian vocal motor pathways. It's very poorly explained by any idea that just activation of the limbic system and, and central pattern generators could produce this. And also the, the indications that social context can change the sequence slightly and alter syllable usage is also more consistent with uh, basal ganglia contributions mm-hmm. to syllable selection and timing. And so that's why we're interested in this area, just because based on the literature, that makes sense. And so I'd love to see if we can actually show that. So how many, how many kind of behavioral ends do you have uh, in terms of the social context regulation of song, uh, I mean, you um, have things like the male-directed, uh, you know, aggressive, uh, aggressive behavior and kind of female-directed right. behavior. But do you have mm-hmm. lots of different kind of uh, or several different manipulations that you can do? Are there other kinds of things that you can? 
Right. Well, that's a that's a two two different questions that we're trying to struggle with right now. Is on the one hand, we need to show uh, through controlled experiments that social context does change the way the males sing the songs, and that's been a challenging experiment to do in the lab. It's one thing, basically all we have right now is observations that under certain circumstances the songs came out this way, but we haven't been able to directly manipulate it ourselves. So we have experiments going on that test that, seeing if we can control how the males uh, integrate syllables into their song. Separately, we need to show that the females actually care. And so we have separate sets of experiments that are just basic uh, choice experiments where the females are given choices to select between different songs and we extract and replace syllables and see how they respond. So is this, is it, uh, is this different from birds? My impression is that in birds, the syllables aren't sort of units of meaning that get mixed into different <coughs> songs. Maybe it's because I just know too much about zebra finch and not enough about anything else. And they pretty much sing the same, same song all the time. But it seemed like the bats use a, you know, a recognizable syllable. You see it as part of this song, as part of that song. Sometimes by itself, in it, and it may mean something by itself. Mm-hmm. Is can can we identify the words that the bat knows and say what the size <laughs> of its vocabulary is? Um, the the actual the vocabulary is much much larger uh, than what we've been able to quantify so far. And it's, that's probably the biggest uh, challenge, is that there are, just in social context, they have so many different communication syllables that they use. Uh, and I have hundreds of hours of video of two bats sitting, looking at each other, saying things with nothing happening. <laughs> you know, and so you'd like to link syllables to particular behaviors that happened before or after, and what you get is nothing. It's like they're just sitting there, they're saying things, Nothing happens. And, and talk about all the other bats. So one question was, in, in, your, in your talk, you showed us some examples of different bats with very different songs. And there were elements in each of those songs that were similar, like what Charlie's saying, but they were, they were very distinct. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if, if the same bat produces very distinct songs. They recombine the sounds that they can... Uh, in the Chomsky sense, generate new uh, sequences? Or do they stick with their unique song? Well, they're, the, the underlying pattern is always the same. It just The only thing that's different is, is one syllable uh, that seems to be personalized. And uh, although that within a short time frame of, like, say, 30 minutes, uh, an individual bat might produce several different variations of the same song. Uh, in general, those always converge on the same overall pattern. Now, we haven't studied song architecture like over a 24-hour period. We don't know if there's circadian rhythms or seasonal rhythms in song structure. We do have recordings from the same individual over many years. So we know that at least over a three-year time period, the song can remain identical. But in that case, that is just one song that means one thing. Whereas even Chomsky would, if he said the same thing over and over, would say it about the same way. But but the idea is that he, he would use the, the same word in different contexts to make different uh-huh. sentences. And that was the thing I was sort of asking about. And that does happen, right? 
So the same syllable gets used in different songs. Well, for like the buzz. The buzz is, is, I think, really fun, and it was the first thing that we settled in on just because it was so clear. We had uh, examples of this happened while we were training the bats initially just to eat mealworms. Because when we first capture them, they're used to catching bugs on the wing, and we can't feed them that way, so we feed them mealworms. So you bring them in, and you go through a two-week period where you're teaching them to recognize these little worms and eat them. You have a couple little, little bats on the table, and you pull out a worm. And once they, they learn these things, they love them. And they will fight over them. And you can't feed them fast enough. So we would pull out a worm, and you're about to feed one. And then another one will charge him. You know, And as soon as he charges him, he starts making the buzzing noise. But he's not you know, trying to echolocate the bug. He's telling the other bat that he's going to bite his head off. <laughs> you know, and so... Uh, we quickly kind of zoomed in on those things. The buzzes are really dramatic. So the same sound you make at your prey, you also make at your enemy. Right, yeah. They do that, and then they incorporate it in the song. But my impression is that they're doing it in an aggressive context, sort of saying that if you land here, then there will so That's be what I kind of meant by, that's this, a word that has the same, there are similar meanings in all these different contexts, right. but gets inserted into a song. In right. a song. In an echolocation, it doesn't really have a meaning. It uh, serves a function, which is to create an acoustic image. But I, I have to, I, I'm intrigued by the idea that because they use this their whole life in at the moment where they kill the bug, that maybe somehow it gets linked in their brain as an aggressive symbol. Certainly, when one bat uses it, he expects the other bat to interpret it that way. So, so the females have the same vocal repertoire as males, or do they do they sing? Do they vocalize the same? Way? No, no, the females don't sing. They have all the same syllables, and, and they are very vocal. And for example, these these uh, little signature whistles or, or chirps that that moms and babies use, they're the same. So that the, the syllable that, that, like the syllables being used in the song, are very similar to these syllables that the mothers and babies are using. So the, the, the females can make the same sounds. It's just that there's no indication that they ever link them together into this kind of display. Do they use the buzz in an aggressive context at all? They do. Is isolated buzzes? They do. It's... Uh, that was something we, re- we really dug into because I thought maybe it would be a, the one thing where we'd really see a big sex difference. But when we put groups of females together, and all you have to do is put them in a small box and make them live together for a half an hour, and they will find a reason to fight. So you just put a couple bats in a box in an enclosed space and wait and record everything, and then we uh, just studied the types of communication syllables being used. And we found pretty much the same patterns for males and females in terms of individual syllables. Do they respond the same way when you put, uh, you know, GABA and agonist in the clade? Do they? Oh. Yeah, that's the next question. Well, that's a really good question, and I haven't done it. One of the, 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 the strange idiosyncrasies about College Station is that we have males and not females. Huh. So for the, the, the groups... That our, our football stadium, which is where I get the bats, is a bachelor colony. Uh, Maybe it's related. It's the football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
So what about um, so? I, I find it fascinating that there's so much variability across the songs, in all the and all the different individuals, and comparing it to what we've learned from the bird song literature, uh, where there is a there's an important learning period and learning the the sequences and learning the sounds of that of the species. I wonder how much of this is. Have, have you had a chance to look at the juveniles and see what sounds they're picking up, or if they're imitating the sounds of their parents? Or well, they're all right. boys. So are that's, they juveniles? Well, right, so that's like the million-dollar question, and the problem is that we cannot breed them in captivity. Um, we do occasionally get females, and we take special care of them, so we have them, um, and we occasionally get pregnant females that give birth. In captivity, though, the females tend to abandon the babies, and we have to try to hand-raise them, and we're not very good at it. And even then, uh, we only get maybe one or two a year. We would have to do a lot of work to try to breed babies and then to be able to study that question. Couldn't you make a, couldn't you make a, a, a bat box? There's these small micro... People have a thousand micro-colonies of bats, like, all around. It seems like a good, it's like, seems like a good place to actually... Because you could have a semi-controlled acoustic environment. Uh, it's controlled somewhat physically. The identifying individuals is harder, but if you have a small what do you enough... you mean by bat box? You mean something out in the backyard that the bats yeah. move in? Yeah. Do, do a wild breeding kind of thing and then hook up uh, a microphone and implant it or something like that. Yeah. I mean, is it... I don't know. Is, is that crazy or is it... It just seems like it's... Because it's, it's a semi-isolated... Uh, environment. I mean, I don't know how many bats it's are never there. isolated. And the thing about the females is that they live in big, big groups, uh-huh. and they form maternity colonies of millions, and they cooperatively raise the young. And so, for one thing, you're never going to get a single female with a baby, not in a natural situation. Uh, so they're always in big, big groups, and so that by itself makes the acoustic recordings almost impossible. You never know if you're recording from the same individual. Uh, so yeah, there's it, a lot of technical challenges, and that's it's entirely possible that parts of the song are learned, uh, but I don't see right now how we're going to overcome that technical challenge. Mm-hmm. So the, the in these maternity colonies, are the males there too? No. So they're not no. really learning the song from the males necessarily. Maybe, maybe if they're learning it, it's hard to know. Yeah, I really don't know. There's not a lot known about the behavioral ecology, even of a species like this that lives among us and is in practically every building. Uh, we know very little about how they interact with each other. I barely know when the females get pregnant. I know it's sometime in the spring. It's sometime during their migration. And the hypothesis is as they're migrating, they're passing through areas where there are males that are singing. And they're stopping off, like at a hotel, and then waking up pregnant, and then keeping going forward. Um, there's a very big maternity colony not far from here called Bracken Cave. That's, I suppose, the biggest one in Texas. So I'd like to say some, uh, ask some questions about the basal ganglia connection, because one of the cool results in I, I'm familiar with the with the literature on sequential motor learning in primates, of course, and that's, the basal ganglia have long been thought to be 
somehow engaged in sequential motor learning. And there are a bunch of primate experiments where you ask the primate to learn to do a, a task like that. Uh, that game, I can't remember the game, uh, Simon was the name of the game. It's an electronic game, and there's colored buttons, and, a, and there's a tone, and the button lights up, and then you have to hit that button, and then you have to remember, because the next one lights up, you have to hit the one that lit up, but you have to hit the sequence that preceded it, and there's no lights to tell you. And then, and anybody ever play that? Yes. <laughs> so uh, the, there are games like that, and uh, that primates are asked to play. They're usually a little bit simpler, but there's a sequence, and then the primate has to remember the previous sequence. And basal ganglia, ex, lots of basal ganglia experiments on that kind of task, and the basal ganglia are really involved in that kind of task. And this is sort of a little bit like that. It is. This, motor sequence. But in the birdsong literature, there's not much sign of that in the birdsong literature. What you see in the, of course, that's all happening in the motor system where these precise timing is occurring, but the basal ganglia's job is to somehow experiment with the timing and throw a change in here or there and see how it works. Is that not the sort of the gist of what people... Well, some of it, what you said, some of it was, uh, that is the gist, but that may be partly because of uh, zebra finch overstudy of <laughs> of stereotype sequencing with the sequences isn't isn't very structured. I mean, one of the real questions and one of the problems I think when you study sequences, uh, are we studying some you know arbitrary sequence like a lot of the those primate experiments where you study some sequences? That's the same thing as a grooming sequence where you have a set of behavioral a sequence of behavioral sets where your each set is a sequence of, of actions and so forth and which which time period you know which time frame are, are, are you talking about and there's lots of birds that have complicated sequences and territorial take different parts of different songs and combine them and stuff and some of it's a disconnect on not really a disconnect but a lot of those birds are, are territorial and seasonal and not very easily studied in the lab. Uh, and so that's part of the, the, the problem why that, that issue hasn't been studied as much. Partly also there, if you're just a physiologist, the more complicated the behavior gets, the less reproducible it is, it's harder to make do experiments. Uh, and so that's, I think, another reason why that hasn't happened. So I think it's an open question. So there are sort of two two things that go into a sequence. Two, I mean, there's probably lots of things, but the two things that come to mind are the actual remembering the sequence and then deciding what sequence this is. So in that Simon game, the light that goes off, I mean, the Simon game is only playing one sequence at a time until you fail, and then it starts with a new sequence over again. But in the experiments, often the... Uh, monkeys are asked to remember a bunch of sequences and they're given a cue that says what this sequence this is and then they have to do that. So they have two jobs. One of them is to learn the actual sequence. The second one is to select the correct sequence when a cue comes up. And to, I've never been really clear on exactly which part of the task was being was you know, was heavily dependent on the basal ganglia. I'm sure the people who do that kind of work have strong opinions about that, and it's, maybe it's just my ignorance. But, but I always, it always seemed to me that it was the the sequence selection that was that was the key thing, rather than actually learning that particular sequence. There's some indication of that in the 
language literature, and in particular with bilinguals and in controlling which language you're in. Um, the basic language is thought to be um, very linked to the frontal, uh, prefrontal cortex, and basic language's role is in, in determining which which sequence or which language to to. Yeah, language to. is a great example of a choice between two sequences. Two sequences. But in, in that sense, is the does the basal ganglia more have stronger connections to the left and the right hemispheres? And at least in the in the human literature, it's thought that the left hemisphere is more involved in timing, and the right hemisphere is more involved in sort of just overall message uh, processing. Everything you know, I know about the basal ganglia is, is symmetrical on the two sides. One of the things that's that is that I would say about the cortical projections of the basal ganglia is that they are heavily bilateral. So that the, the places that, that project to, to the, the parts of the cortex that project to the contralateral cortex, which isn't everywhere, uh, have an especially strong representation in the basal ganglia. So I don't, that's the only kind of lateralization thing that I know about. Uh, but of course, I've never studied uh, human the human basal ganglia, <laughs> which is why you expect that. To be but studied. I wonder if you looked at these. Sequential. Is there any evidence in like bird or, or bat or even primate that the sequential uh, sequential information is processed better by one hemisphere than the other? Because uh, there's lateralization in all species, right? I mean, there's a certain level of mm-hmm. left hemisphere dominance. Yeah. You, you do yeah. unilateral infusions. Do you have a bias for one hemisphere versus another? Or have you looked at both? So far, everything we do is in the left hemisphere. Uh, but we're planning experiments. See, no wonder it works. Time will be lost <laughs> right now. Well, it's, that, that's purely for practical reasons because I'm right-handed. And so I put the animal down in front of me, and then he's looking at me, and I have to do everything with my right hand. <laughs> Eventually, I have to force myself to do it, but I always put that off to him. Or higher left-handed darts. Yes, yeah. yes. So what's really nice about those studies, though, is that it's very specific. The deficits are so specific to language and, and singing as opposed to any other motor or extrapyramidal type stuff that you've been able to see, right? Well, we do control experiments in different areas. So we can go just a little bit farther forward, and we can get pretty substantial motor deficits. And we can trigger a variety of other behaviors, like a circling behavior, fictive chewing, uh, and if we go a little bit farther back into the area that we just call putamen, then we can get uh, motor discoordination and trembling and those kind of deficits. Which is really great, because then you've seen the whole range of the human spectrum of behaviors as well. Well, I won't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> so when we see that kind of localization of function in the striatum, we usually attribute it to the topographic organization of the cortex. So the place in the cortex that corresponds to that special place in the cottage. It would be a very interesting part of the cortex to know about. Yes. Ever do any like retrograde tracing yeah, study? Yeah, just that. starting. Just starting. We, it would uh, be fascinating to know. If it's I, broken. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah it's not, it doesn't have to be that, right? It doesn't have to be that in order to still be cool. And uh, certainly just, I haven't found the cortical areas in, in, in any bad except for Suga's mustache bat, we don't know much about the organization of the cortex. So even going from a mouse brain atlas, I can't just say that because, you know, this says supplementary motor cortex in the mouse that that's where I am here. It's actually the most difficult thing about working with bats is that 
as I move into new areas, I have to redo everything. Is it motor cortex? Is it somatosensory cortex? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we're just trying. There are probably side of architectonic clues, though, especially for detecting that difference. Would be uh, pretty easy. That's uh, another interesting thing about bats, is that the, uh, while there are bound to be, uh, it's not as straightforward as you might think, because in some sense, the, the bat's cortex, the free-tail bat specifically, is not nearly as well layered as other cortex. In that sense, it seems primitive. In that, even in a, in a mouse or rat cortex, you can usually see the major layers very nicely in a nissel stain or something like that. And in the, the free-tail bat, the layers just don't pop out at you the same way. And so, based on my reading, that implies that the cortical organization is slightly more primitive. Well, the most primitive cortices are the most layered. Are the right? most layered? Yeah. You know, archicortex is the most heavily layered cortex there is. And primary motor cortex is kind of the least layered. Uh-huh. And so, uh, there might be some, you know, uh, relationship to primitivity that way, but... Uh, but it, it's not as simple as all that. Okay. Like it isn't like the first neocortex was unlayered or something like that. And of course, I don't know where neocortex came from, but it, certainly if it came from archicortex, it should have started out really layered and become less so. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in finding the areas of cortex. Then. If that, if perhaps it, to some extent, the, the most significant thing for me about getting this behavior and being able to evoke it is implying that there almost has to be now somewhere in the cortex that's hooked up to this and, and running it. And so I need to find it. So these, the, when you do these um, uh, uh, treatments where, where you're disrupting, you, you get this um, excessive chattering from, from the bats. When you, I, I forgot what procedure that was. It's infusion of kinase. That was the. So, um, I know it's at the beginnings of it of this of these studies, right? So, I don't know if you've seen a disruption in the sequences, or is it just an excessive talking? Is it is it fluent aphasia, or is it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's it's variable. So, with the canic acid, actually, the canic acid is the least variable, in that. Uh, it, it doesn't produce an overall increase in vocalizing. It actually seems to reduce echolocation and bias the animal towards these communication sequences. So we have some animals where during you know the first 15 minutes, echolocation will almost completely disappear, and all it does is produce these sequences. And then as the drug wears off, those, the, the vocal sequences go away and the echolocation kind of returns because these are all unilateral injections, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is a, a, one question maybe that you're on the way. It's not a, you're just biasing it one versus the other. Maybe the other side of the brain is doing echolocation and this is doing, I mean, maybe. could be a hemispheric yeah. dominance kind of thing. You're just imbalancing yeah. the brain. That would be an amazing and cool it, result if that was true. Yeah, yeah, if that was true. But they're not producing <laughs> echolocation. No, they kind of they drop it out during the... Uh, the, 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 the effect of canic acid causes them to switch, at least for a short while, just to the song production. Mm. And then they kind of gradually fall back to normal. There are other ways of exciting this area that I alluded to. 
So, for example, bicuculin is a GABA-A receptor antagonist, which works great for hyper-exciting cells. When we inject that through the same cannula into the same site, you get an animal that just echolocates as fast as possible, like crazy, for 30 or 40 minutes, but it never converts into a song. So there may be different ways of activating the circuits. So I want to end on a kind of a practical note. So so it sounds like you're one of a handful of people who works on free tail bat. Is that right? It's not a, the, the usual bat uh, the, of choice for studies of, of motor um, function. Is that right? Well, uh, right. So how, how hard is, is it to... What is the most common well, actually, I mean, I think I'm only one of two people that actually use bats to study motor function. There's two labs in Texas that use free tail bats. George Pollock's lab at Austin uses it to study auditory processing, and uh, we use it for the motor control system. So, so how hard is it to to sort of justify the? You're, you're basically what you're doing is you're establishing this model, and that that's a huge burden for somebody who. I mean, the, I'm assuming that. The, there's no Paxinos free tail bat that you can <laughs> rely on. You're basically mm-hmm. mapping this de novo. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, I guess in some ways that's kind of good because you know the literature completely from the very <laughs> beginning. <laughs> but you know, are, there, are there issues there? And for instance, justifying, uh, you know, IACUC protocols and NIH grants. And yeah, there is. Of course there is. Um, and I wouldn't use this animal if I didn't genuinely believe that this will get me the answers that I want. Like if I could do these experiments in a mouse, I would do it in a heartbeat. But I don't think I can. On the other hand, I think that maybe with 15 or 20 years of work in the free tail bat, I will know enough about the circuitry that I might be able to go back to a mouse then and be very productive at addressing more specific questions. Well, there might be scads of people studying genetics of free tail bat. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, as far as you know, the, using this particular species goes, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's not the most widely used bat in research. Uh, in, in North America, the big brown bat has been used the most, mostly because it's the most widely distributed. A big brown bat is a, is a, a hardy North American bat that lives in forests and just goes into torpor in the winter. The free-tailed bats avoid cold weather by migrating. But around here, we have so many of these bats. And they are, uh, where I am, they're a public health hazard. So we're taking animals out of an area that has been deemed unsafe for human beings. And that's a nacho stand. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so they have to find the ways to deal with the animals. They are reproducing much faster than they can be controlled. And so, so it's a win-win. Right. I don't feel like that the, the animals that we take from the wild, which is a relatively small number, has any effect on the ecology of the species. If I did, I wouldn't do it. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons this species is appropriate. That's great. Well, thank you, Mike Smotherman, for being with us today. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm-hmm.